Our scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Abraham Lincoln said in in one of his most famous speeches that he gave before the, uh, the convention of the Illinois Republican Party in 1858, when he received the nomination to be their candidate for the United States Senate, he, he said to them, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect that it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Now, Lincoln, of course, in saying that a house divided against itself cannot stand, was referring to the words of Jesus that he said when he was accused by the scribes and Pharisees of being in league with Beelzebul by, by casting out demons in the name of the prince of demons. And Jesus's point was simple, and it was impossible to miss. That even if the scribes and Pharisees' accusations were true— that he was in league with the devil, which of course he was not, that it represented a moment of triumph and of victory for God's kingdom. Because either Jesus represented the work of God in the world, which meant that the forces of light were triumphing over the forces of darkness, or if he was in league with the devil, it meant that Satan's forces were forming a kind of circular firing squad and turning upon themselves. And so either way, by no matter what means or, or in whose power he was casting out unclean spirits. It represented a victory for God. Now Lincoln was right. America did become all one thing, all free seven years later, if in name, if not in practice. But he couldn't have imagined that the cost of blood it would take, including his own, for his prediction to come true. The history of our nation is one that is marked by a a constant struggle to to stay together, to to stay united. 
in the face of the pressures and the forces that want to tear us apart. It seems like everything that happens in this country that could or should unite us eventually actually just breaks along partisan and party lines. Even in this pandemic, we can see that happening. You know, we should be uniting to defeat COVID. We have a common enemy and nothing unites as much as a common enemy. We have a common enemy and a common goal, right? We don't want to just flatten this curve. We, we, we want to stomp it right into the ground. But instead, the danger, it seems, is that we will muddle through because it's going to be, you know, the people who want to kill grandma versus the people who say, you know what, let's just lock everything down for the next 18 to 24 months. Now, I see this happening and, and it fills me with despair because I'm just a normie and, 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 and I want to save as many lives as possible and I want to get back to living life as normally as possible as soon as possible. Now, if disunity marks our political life, the church can't claim to be doing much better of a job either, can it? I mean, there are thousands of, of Protestant denominations and, and new ones come into existence every single year. The very idea, if you step back and, 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 and think about it, of a national denomination is, is itself a hat tip uh, to disunity in the church. You know, when you decide to organize your church along sort of national lines, according to the nation state in which you live, it's cutting yourself off in a polity sense from, from being a part of the global body of Christ. And so the, you know, Presbyterians in Korea and Brazil and Ghana and the United States d divide themselves along lines of, of national boundaries, not, not to mention the, the various splinter groups in, in the United States of America, the PCUSA, the PCA, the EPC, the OPC, and ECO. You have the Covenant Church, which there's one version of it in Sweden, one in the Democratic Republic of Congo, one in the United States and Canada. Then you've got, you know, Protestants being divided from Catholics. You've got Catholics being divided from the Eastern Orthodox churches. And then you have the Eastern Orthodox churches, which all have their own national representation being divided against each other and vying for control. I mean, you, you had the uh, head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church anathematizing one another over what happened in the Crimea. Now, there was the ecumenical movement of the 20th century, which tried to bring churches together to heal these divides, to bring unity. But that movement itself, the World Council of Churches itself, it, it's a shell of what it once was. The ecumenical movement a shambles, a shell of what it once was and what its founders hoped that it could be or would be. Now, before I go on, I just want to ask an, an obvious question. So what? Why is division and disunity in, in, in the global body of Christ and, and the local body of Christ, why is that a problem? Why, why is that a bug and not a feature? Couldn't you actually say that, that it's a good thing because it means that Christianity can then adapt itself to, to diverse local circumstances and, and culture and, and, and people? And it's a clever answer, actually. It's, it's one that tempts me the most when I'm faced with the reality of disunity in the church and, and the desire to actually defend it. But the real rub and, and the problem with it comes when we look at our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul says, and, and here I love, I absolutely love Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of it in the message. 
you know, where in the ESV it says, you know, has Christ been divided? But, but Peterson captures the color of the language, the flavor of Paul's language, the spirit of it, where he says, has Christ been chopped up into little bits? It's a rhetorical question. The problem with disunity in the church is the same problem as dismembering a body, which the church is, the body of Christ. It's the same problem with solving a, a question of maternity by suggesting to split the baby in half, as the wise King Solomon did. A body is only a body when it's together, when its members are amputated and divided, it no longer functions, and it becomes something that is actually grotesque. To switch metaphors to something less macabre, but, but no less biblical, uh, what good is a disassembled house? What good is a roof without walls or, or walls without a foundation or, or bricks without mortar to hold them together? A house divided cannot stand. A body divided becomes a corpse. So the reality of disunity is, is a scandal for the church. It's, it's a counter witness to the gospel of Jesus, the Jesus Christ and its power to affect reconciliation, not just between humanity and God, but between human beings. And it's something in which we all participate and which we all must repent of. But it's a problem that I can't solve today, not in, in one sermon, and nor do I think it's really the focus of Paul's letter. This is not a letter written to reconcile, you know, different church bodies all over the ancient world. For the next few weeks, we'll be in 1 Corinthians looking at this letter and see how Paul uses it to address a, a church that is cracking, fracturing, and fraying over a whole host of issues. But before I, I get into the specifics of our passage this morning, I, I do want to say just be careful about just reading our own current divisions in, in global Christianity and American Christianity into this letter. Though it does have relevance— for denominations in the midst of division or dispute, their issues aren't his. You know, we think of our issues, and Paul does. He does address a, a sex scandal in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a, a man who is uh, sleeping with and living with his, his stepmother, and Paul says, expel the immoral, immoral brother. And Paul does deal with uh, those who would deny the resurrection in chapter 15 of this letter. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, then we are the most pitiable of all people. So what we have here isn't a guidebook for denominations in dispute or, or competing schools of thought. What we have here is a letter of a concerned pastor to the church he founded. It's much more local, much more personal, and therefore much more relevant and, and, and pressing than we would care to admit. Because when Paul addresses the church here, it's not primarily the capital C church. It's the little C church, a local congregation of believers that he knows by name. Chloe's people, Stephanus, Crispus, Gaius. These are the words of a pastor to his people, real, actual people who, who he knows, who he's broken bread with, and who find themselves falling apart. And Paul's deep desire to draw them back together for the sake of the gospel. And so when we read this letter and reflect on it, we need to understand that behind it all is a pastor's heart. 
for this particular gathering of Christians. Now, with all that said, I want us to look at, at three things this morning. The sources of disunity in, in the Corinthian church, the, the true source of their unity, and lastly, just a modest proposal for how we can pursue unity. So the sources of disunity, uh, the, 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 the source of true unity, and a modest proposal for how we can live out that unity and pursue it together. So first, the sources of disunity. In verse 10, Paul lays out what is his thesis statement for his entire letter. This, this is, is what he is addressing right here in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the letter itself is an appeal for unity where that unity is framed, is being challenged. And Paul then goes on to explain the problem that's been brought to his attention. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And that word for quarreling, it, it, it's a strong word. You know, this just isn't little spats or, or disputes or, 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 you know, kind of griping against other people. No, this is real, intense, sustained conflict, right? Bitterness. We all know the difference between a quarrel, you know, a spat, and a real knockdown, drag out fight. Paul is talking about the latter, not the former here. So what's the source of this quarreling, of this bitter division and anger that has arisen? Well, he explains, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So these disputes, then they break along these lines. That the church is divided in who the various members of it say that they follow. Now, what could that mean? And so scholars and interpreters over the centuries have suggested several different parties or factions and the meanings that might be behind them. And so here I just want to rank them for what I see as, as the least plausible to the most plausible sources of division and disunity in the Corinthian church. Now, now first, there are those who see these various divisions between these teachers as ones that are based on, on doctrine or theology. That is, these, these weren't just different teachers, but they were different uh, Christian schools of thought that were represented by them. And, and so Paul, he represents the, uh, the Christian Libertine Party, right? Those who emphasize faith in Christ and, and God's grace over against, you know, works of, of the law. And so their opponents then would have seen them as using um, their freedom in Christ, uh, their, their justification by faith and not by works as giving them an excuse and license to live however they want it. And, and then there's Apollos, and he represents the kind of learned Greek uh, philosophical school. So these are, are the eggheads and the esoteric and the educated. And then there's Cephas, which is, is Peter, the apostle Peter's Hebrew name. And so he would have represented the Jewish Christian school who emphasized works uh, of the law just as much as faith in Christ. And so they would have been the rigorists and the legalists. And, and, and there's those who say, I follow Christ, hardly, who are the charismatic, you know, the super spiritual people in a community. And you can see why this uh, suggested interpretation of this passage would be preferred, especially by modern Christians. Because, you know, if we, if, we, if we squint just hard enough, we can then begin to map on our own, you know, divisions um, in, in, in Christianity onto this passage. But the problem with this approach is that it, it's purely speculative, and it actually goes against the evidence that we see in, in 1 Corinthians itself. 
Nowhere does Paul indicate that any of these teachers had any other different, you know, substantially different message or different gospel from him. And in Paul's other writings, when he does get the sense that other teachers have come in and preached a different gospel, he is not shy in saying so and in calling it out in the strongest possible terms. He doesn't mince his words. Now, it's been suggested that these various teachers then, they may not represent different theological schools or schools of Christian thought, but, but maybe they represent different ethnic groups and ethnic divisions in the church. And, and so, uh, you know, Corinth was a Roman colony, and it prided itself on that fact. In, in fact, it, it was said that Corinthians were more Roman than Rome itself. And so you would have these different classes based on on ethnicity in the church. And so there would have been, you know, the highest status Christians who would have been Roman citizens like Paul himself. And and then kind of, you know, in in between these classes and and, and it's like South Africa under apartheid. You know, you had the whites at the top and then in the middle were were the coloreds and at the bottom uh, were, were, you know, the the black Africans. And so, you know, in the middle we have the the Greeks, the Hellenists. They're, They're not quite high status as the Romans, but they fall in that middle status. They have, you know, more privileges um, than other groups. And then at the bottom, you have the, 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 the Jewish people. And they would have been of the lowest ethnic and, and social status within the church. And so you see that stratification in society possibly being brought into the church. Now, I think this is much more plausible because we know that ethnic tensions existed in the early church. Because Paul addressed those in, in Ephesians and, and in Galatians. But that doesn't seem to be the issue here. Not, not, not right now that Paul is addressing in this letter. And Paul does, where he does see it happening in the church, he does address it. And, and where Paul does see class disparities happening in the church, particularly around the celebration of the Lord's Supper, he teaches around that in chapter 11. So this leads me to what I see as really the two, two plausible explanations, uh, most plausible explanations for the divisions that have arisen in the Corinthian church. And, and now one of them is, is that the cultural divisions that existed in Corinth around particular teachers have been brought into the church itself. And one thing we need to understand about Corinth is that it was a hotbed of, of philosophy and of various schools of thought. Teachers would come to Corinth and they would teach out in the marketplace and and they would attract a following for themselves. And and so part of being loyal to your teacher was also attacking um, the the other teachers and and their students. And so there was real rivalries that arose between various groups and schools of thought and, and teachers. It wasn't merely enough to be for God, for your guy. You had to be against the other guys as well. And sometimes this, this revolted, it resulted in sporadic outbreaks of, of violence, fisticuffs. So it appears as though uh, in Corinth, the Christians had imported, imported this cultural practice of loyalty to one's preferred teacher into uh, the church over and against the other ones. They had imported then their practices of, of partisanship. And so just as this was a great danger for the church at Corinth, it's also a great danger for us now. You know, we, 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 we tend to bring our own cultural sources of disunity into the church, and, and then we just divide predictably along those lines. And when I see that in the church, it, it absolutely breaks my heart. Because as followers of Jesus, we're on his team. Not team red or team blue 
or team, you know, progressive or, or team conservative or team white or team black or team woke or team broke or team joke or team bespoke to borrow some language from a meme. Now we're on team genius, Jesus. And when I say that, I recognize that I might just be falling guilty to the last group that it says, well, I follow Jesus, which, which is maybe the most insufferable team of all. People who say, well, I'm above the fray. I, I, I'm the adult in the room. I don't care about these other things. And so I will not pre- pretend that it's not important to care about these things or pretend that somehow one can remain above the fray and that makes you a better person. But I will say that even when we care about things, even, even when we have our own partisan preferences, what we do have to do is to hold them much more loosely than we hold our loyalty to Jesus and our desire to, to pursue harmony and unity with those who also love him. But don't think exactly the same way as us. And the last source of disunity which it's the most prosaic, but I think it rings the truest, it's the most relatable and relevant to us, is that these differences are driven by, by personality as much as anything. Now, this isn't as, maybe as profound, you know, to say these are competing schools of thought or, or underlying, you know, ethnic or social or class tensions. It's just some people like Paul. Some people like Apollos. Some people like Cephas better than they like the other ones. They preferred maybe their personality, their, their style of teaching, just, just their temperament. Maybe they had the same Enneagram score. And so, you know, they just, they just vibed with that person better. Now, what about the Jesus party? Again, those were the adults in the room who prided themselves on vibing with everyone perfectly well. And so they were better than everyone else, making them the most insufferable of all. Now, differences over, over style and over personality and over temperament, th- those are the oldest and most venerable sources of division and disunity in the church. When I think about my, my own experience, I know, I know that that's true. I like my old youth pastor better than I like my new youth pastor. And so, you know, that means I wanted to go to youth group less. I liked it better when the associate pastor preached than the the senior pastor. There are those of you who, you know, you prefer Matt to me. Those who miss the previous pastor. Those who wish I was more like some other famous pastor. I do too. Those who prefer the the, the pastor with the great books or podcasts or or the provocateur who is unafraid to speak his or her mind. I get that. And the problem is not with having preferences. Preferences are normal and natural. It's just a human tendency. We get along with some people. We, 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 we jive with some people better than we do other people. That's just a fact. And we cannot pretend that it's otherwise. No point in doing so. We all connect and resonate with different kinds of people. But the problem becomes when in the church that those personal preferences become prejudices. When who we favor becomes a faction. When loyalty to particular messengers becomes more important than our loyalty to the message and commitment to the message itself. That's when it becomes a problem 
And it happens all the time. And, and it's one of the great tools that Satan uses to keep his church, the church of Jesus Christ, divided and weak and fighting with one another. I remember someone telling me once that, that growing up, their, their church was so divided over their pastor that the people actually wore to worship on Sundays buttons that said, I support my pastor which were, you know, kind of like showed what camps the church had divided in between those who supported the pastor and those who didn't wear the button, who by implication did not. And that's the kind of, you know, petty, culturally conditioned, soul-killing, mission-distracting, interpersonal conflict-driven disunity Paul is talking about here. Not everyone at church has to like each other. But we all have to love each other. Now, why? Why is that? Well, this brings us to our true source of unity, the second point in the sermon I want to make. And it's not all because we like the same things or, or we think exactly the same things or we look and dress exactly the same way. No, it's not our, our kind of homogeneity and our immutable characteristics that brings us unity. It's that we all have the same source of salvation, the cross. Paul lays it right out there in verses 17 and 18 where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what united the Corinthian church is what unites all churches and all Christians, and that is the word of the cross. Corinthians lived in a world where they were surrounded by, by the best teachers, by, by those who had mastered rhetoric and logic and, and philosophy, the best of ancient learning and classical culture. It was at their fingertips. If, if they wanted to hear a message that was profound or was deep or, or esoteric or even mysterious, if you were in Corinth, you could find it in spades. But that's not what had won the Corinthians over. What had won them over was the word of the cross. And, and the word Paul, he says, the, the logos of the cross. So we might even say it's not just the word of the cross. It's the logic of the cross that had won them over. That the creator of the universe had entered into the middle of history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And through his shameful death, defeated the powers of sin and death and evil, and inaugurated God's victory and reign on earth. And that when you believe that message and proclaim your loyalty to Jesus, God's spirit works in your heart, just like it's at work in all of creation to make all things new and all things right. That's the logic of the cross. And the logic of the cross is that this instrument of execution and torture is the means whereby sin is punished and forgiven, whereby death is swallowed up in victory, whereby the powers of darkness are exhausted whereby a humanity that is enslaved by evil is emancipated, whereby in a world filled with hate, God's love wins, whereby true power is seen in weakness, whereby Jesus died the death that we should have in order to give us an everlasting life that only he deserved. That's the logic of the cross. And it sounds like absolute madness to the world, as Paul says, that is perishing. And in my sermon last week, I talked about just how despicable the cross was in the imagination of, of Greco-Roman culture. 
But Paul had come to Corinth and he'd opened the scriptures and showed how they pointed to Jesus and to the cross. And how that was the good news of God's love, grace, joy, peace, and kingdom exploding into the world. And that word, that logic of the cross, united the Corinthians believer, Corinthian believers. And while it might have sounded, you know, crazy to their friends and their family and their neighbors, it sounded so true to them. They believed that Jesus died on the cross for them and that he had been raised to new life and that when they pledged their loyalty to him and joined his family on earth, called the church, they were continuing his work, his mission, his ministry in the world until he came again or until they died and entered into his presence. And it's belief in that message and it's ultimate truth that unites Christians always, everywhere. And it's because we believe in the cross as the source of reconciliation that we are able to crucify our own petty differences. Right? We, we believe in it. We believe in, in the cross more than we believe in our need to be selfish or cling to our own sin. We, we, we love the cross more than we love our own sin. We, we believe that it's the ultimate source of righteousness. And so we can let go of our own self-righteousness. Because we recognize that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners saved by grace. No one's any better or any worse than that. So that's the source of unity, which leads me to the last point I want to make very briefly. It's a modest proposal for how to live out and pursue that unity. And it leads us back to our, our, our scripture from Acts chapter 18. And to be honest, when, and so we structure our readings around something called the narrative lectionary. So basically during the school year, September uh, through the end of May, we have a list of readings that we follow out that takes us, you know, through some of the stories of the Old Testament, through a gospel, and then through some of the early Christian literature, Paul's letters and the book of Acts and such. And so, you know, you, you go, okay, we're connecting what happened in Acts to the letters that Paul wrote. And you get to like, Acts chapter 18, and it tells you Paul went to Corinth and he did some tent making with Priscilla and Aquila and preached in the synagogue and sort of that's it. And you read that passage and you go, well, do we really need to read that to know that Paul went to Corinth? I mean, that, what's the punchline? And it, and it even leads out the best stuff of what happened at Corinth when, you know, Paul was opposed and, and sort of the, 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 the scandal that his preaching caused. And so I thought, well, that was sort of a throwaway to have Acts chapter 18 in this passage. But, no, there's, there's actually something here that relates to Paul's message of unity in our, in our reading from 1 Corinthians 1. And, and for this last point, I owe the insight uh, to something that my co-life group leader, Luke Stebbing, actually pointed out in our Zoom life group meeting this past Tuesday. Because he had kind of the same reaction as me. He's like, what is, why, okay, Acts 18, 1 through 4, all right, move along now. But no, he, he said this, he's like, you know, actually I thought about this, that, that, it has an important ma- point to make here about how we experience unity and can even achieve unity is when we work side by side with our fellow Christians. It's a simple point, but it's a profound one. That unity is not just some ideal that we hold in our heads, but it, it's something that we practically pursue as we, we get our hands dirty working side by side with our fellow Christians. You know, so we can do that together here too. We can live that out here too. There's a myriad of ways to do it. I don't want to make suggestions and limit the possibilities, but you know, you serve side by side at Lowe's and Fishes. 
We got the church beautification days, mission trips, serving on a ministry team, just throwing a birthday party or, or a baby shower for one of our congregants. Those are all ways that, that we're living out, working together side by side and, and building the kind of connections and, and, and social bonds that, that mean that, we, you know, sometimes even when pressure arises in the church, and it will in conflict, we might be bent, but we won't be broken. And so unity is, is not an ideal. It's something that happens through practice as God works in us. And so that's just a modest proposal of how we can pursue unity together as we work towards God's kingdom purposes in practical and tangible ways side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. As Amy sang this morning, And finally, I just want to close with these wonderful words from Matthew Henry's commentary on the 1 Corinthians passage. He said this, In the great things of religion, be of one mind. And where there is not unity of sentiment, still let there be unity of affection. Agreement in greater things should extinguish divisions about the lesser. There will be perfect union in heaven. And the nearer we approach it on earth, the nearer we come to perfection. And so whenever we find ourselves in division and disunity, I pray that Jesus would lead us to the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for the word of the cross, which is folly to the world that is perishing, but is is convicting to those of us who are being saved. And so, Lord God, we pray that this word might be convicting, that it might, might cause us to crucify those places where we contribute to division and disunity and dissension in the church, and that, Lord, we might find through your Spirit working in us that we come to be of one melodious accord. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who achieved perfect reconciliation for us. Amen.